Good morning. It's good to see you here on this lovely Tulsa morning. German theologian Martin Koller is famous for saying this, that Mark's gospel is a passion narrative with an extended introduction. In other words, his point was, when you read the gospel of Mark in particular, there's this sense that the bulk of the content is really here to tell us the story of Jesus' passion, his death, his resurrection, and what you read is an introduction leading us into that moment. Now, I understand this morning's gospel reading comes to us from Luke's gospel, not from Mark's gospel, but I think there's something we can glean from this, and it's a bit of an oversimplification, but on some level, there is a way in which the passion of Jesus, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus anchors everything we read in the gospel stories. They're all headed this way. And we're going to look into this story a little bit more closely this morning. But before we get there, I want to draw your attention to what Paul said in his letter to the Corinthians. Our reading from the New Testament this morning starts in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, Look at this interesting phrase. And by which you are being saved. How many people are in process with me of being saved? Wave your hand at me so I know I'm the only one in the room. Okay. In which you are being saved. And look at this terrible next word. If, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. And here's where I want us to focus. For I delivered to you as of first importance. First importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. What Paul's saying here is the most important thing of all the things that you're believing. It's not the only important thing, but at the top of the list here, is this idea that Jesus Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised. All of these things happen in accordance with the scriptures. This is where we start. This is where we finish. This is the anchor that holds what we're talking about in place. And I think it's true in Luke's story here in this fifth chapter, because what we find here is Jesus showing us what theologians call the great reversal. The great reversal. Nobody would have imagined that Jesus' death would overthrow death. Nobody would have imagined that political power would be found powerless in the face of Christian love. Nobody would have imagined those things. And the entirety of Jesus is this story of which he overthrows, he flips the script time and time again on the things that we hold so dear and so true. And I think we see that happening at least three times in this story. The moment Peter thinks he's got Jesus figured out, Jesus goes, bah, you don't have it figured out. Let's look at three quick moves that happen here in this. In this. Before I even go further, how great is this opening line in the gospel reading this morning where he says in the first verse, it says, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word. 
Something about that, when I read that, every time I read that this week, something inside of me just came, like, got quickened. I want to be that kind of person, amen? I want to be that kind of person that's pressing, that's pushing, that's clawing, because I so desperately want to hear the word. I want to be that person that Jesus speaks of, I think, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I don't want to be somewhat casual and comfortable when it comes to what God has to say. There's something about that that just got my ear this week as I was sitting with it. The first thing I want to note is this. Notice, if you have your Bible, look down on this text. Jesus has got a crowd following him. Let's follow the storyline here. And he decides that what he's going to do is he's going to get into one of these fishing boats. He's by the Sea of Galilee. He wants to get into one of these fishing boats and sit down. And he's going to use the water as a natural amphitheater sort of a thing and get projection and amplification of his voice. And so he decides to go ahead and say, Peter, your boat's going to be the boat. And he gives some instructions and Peter pushes him away and he teaches. We don't know how long he teaches. We don't know what he teaches. But the implication of the text is it must have been impressive. It must have been significant. Now think about the gospel reading from last week is when Jesus is in Nazareth. And he reads from the prophet Isaiah. He says, today this is filled, fulfilled in your midst. And remember what it says about the people in Nazareth in the synagogue? They were astonished. They were amazed at what he had to say. I don't know if you recall, but at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has concluded these three chapters in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And the, the final commentary on Jesus is they are amazed at his teaching. He just seems to have this pattern. When he opens up his mouth, the words that come from the word are astonishing. And here's how we get this sense. Notice what happens. He finished speaking, verse 4, and he says to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And look at the way Simon responds to him. This is our first sort of interesting clue. Master. They have no sense of relationship up until this point. But for a couple of hours, Peter's been on the shore cleaning his nets, listening to this rabbi teach from his boat. And whatever he heard, he must have realized at some moment, this guy knows what he's talking about. He recognized this language in the Greek is a language that signifies a master rabbi. Luke is the only one of the gospel writers who uses it this way. And it's very much meant to signify a recognition of someone's excellence, of someone's giftedness, of someone's skill. But can I say this in all fairness to Jesus? Skill in theology does not equate to skill in fishing. Hello? I fish a lot. And I have fished a lot over my years. And there is nothing more annoying, especially in fishing, because it's, it's God has told me to fish. He has given me a calling to fish recreationally. I think part of it is because he wants to humiliate me as much as he can. And let me realize that I am truly powerless in life because there's nothing worse than spending a lot of money, too much money, Danielle, I apologize. A lot of money on tackle and gear and going out for a lot of hours and you come home to your family who's waiting with bated breath to say, what, how'd you do? You, the whole drive back from the lake is thinking how you're gonna answer that question. 
Because you're trying to figure out, how do I tell them I got nothing, but it wasn't my fault? You're coming back from, five, you got up, I don't get up at, at, in the dark. I never got up for my kids in the dark. I'm getting up to catch fish in the dark. I'm driving while the moon is in the sky, getting excited, getting into water, being in the cold, being in the fog, reading magazines, going on websites, YouTube, TV shows, everything. The perfect lure. Nothing. No, it's my anointing. Nothing. Oklahoma got even worse. I've not caught a fish in this state. Very bitter. There's only one thing that could make that scenario worse, is if somebody who doesn't fish wants to tell you what you need to change in order to start catching fish. Now here's what is common knowledge to people who fish, is that you're going to have more success in the dark than you are in the light. You're going to catch more fish at night, more fish right before the sun comes up, than you're going to catch at high noon. High noon is nap time for people who like to fish. Let's get out. That's how we would comfort ourselves. We're getting up at 4.30 in the morning, but we're going to be sleeping at 11.30. We're going to be out cold, right? Jesus adds insult to injury. These men are professionals. I am a hobbyist. They are professionals. They've been doing what they're supposed to be doing. And look at this. They did it at the right time and they did it the right way. They were in the right place at the right, they were working hard and smart. Hello. We went out at night and we didn't just go out at night and fish for 20 minutes. We went out at night and look at what Peter says. We toiled all night, right? And here comes the rabbi, the master. You know the Torah. What? You want us to go back out now in the daytime that the sun is high in the sky and the fish are not interested and you want us to do this again? Somehow Jesus convinced Peter to obey an irrational instruction. Somehow he convinced Peter that his lack of expertise was not a problem. I think what's interesting is that Jesus' command on some level, it confronts Peter's personal experience. I know you toiled all night long. I know that you worked hard for nothing. I don't know if you've had this experience in your life where you were doing, you were working hard and you're working smart. Have you found out that the rewards and the returns are not always in proportion to your effort? Has anybody found this out? I think it's a universal human experience. Has anybody poured yourself into a relationship and not gotten quite the reciprocity you were looking for? Poured yourself into a job only to get laid off. Poured yourself into all sorts of things and you don't get the return. Boy, do I have good news for you this morning. Thank you, Pastor Mark. I have very good news for you this morning. Jesus specializes in folks like that. He specializes in situations like that. And a lot of the time, he comes with the most counterintuitive direction you could ever imagine. 
something that makes absolutely no sense, something that doesn't work for our logic. This miracle is a great reversal. This miracle is bigger than the miracle because what it says is this, the thing that you would never think would be effective is going to be. The thing that you would never think is going to work is going to work. Fishing in the day when fishing at night didn't work, when Jesus says it, it's going to work. There's something about that that sets a precedent for Jesus' life and ministry through his crucifixion and resurrection. And friends, I got to tell you, it's still happening today. Jesus is still coming to frustrated folks and saying, go into the deep and drop your nets. At that moment, though, something shifts. We have to ask ourselves, like Mary, how can this be? Peter, can we catch fish in the middle of the day? How about the rest of Nazareth? Can Joseph's son fulfill the prophet? How about all of Israel? To this day, most Hebrew scholars don't look at Isaiah 52 and 53 and think it's talking about the Messiah. The Christians, they go, oh, that's our Jesus right there. Okay, fine, but that's not the Messiah. How could a suffering servant be God's king and anointed one? Humans have to ask the question, how could death be a pathway to victory? I think this morning, Christian hope rests soundly in Jesus. The Jesus who speaks to tired and frustrated fishermen with a word of supernatural power. Notice Jesus shifts his MO here. He's been in the boat teaching, dropping his wisdom pearls, boom, blowing their mind. This guy's a master. But when Jesus gets out of that boat and he talks to Peter, something shifts and now Jesus is not in teaching mode, Jesus is in power mode. He's not necessarily in wisdom mode, he's in supernatural miracle mode. Because he's not trying to give Peter insight into life, if you will, as much as he is trying to reveal himself to Jesus. And that's exactly what happens because here's the shift. If you look at verse 8, we know what happens. They drop down the nets and the boats are sinking because of such a catch. And look at Peter's response. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And look at this. Oh, Lord. Jesus' name has changed. You see, the wisdom convinced Peter that Jesus was a master. The power convinced Peter that Jesus was Lord. Suddenly there's movement now. Suddenly there's a shift. Suddenly, at first, Jesus is maybe just a presumptuous guy who wants to use Peter's boat. After Peter watches this guy go down for a couple hours, I'm guessing it was a long sermon. He's watching this sermon. He's like, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. And then when he starts dabbling in Peter's work and he sees the power of God displayed, logic upended, he realizes something more than great teaching, something more than wisdom is going on here. And his response is not unlike the response of Isaiah. These passages like Isaiah 6 and Luke chapter 5, 
they often make me question myself, if I can be honest here for a moment. Because in my world, when God's robe fills the temple, when God's power brings a great miracle, my inclination is to get all excited, to get all caught up in what God's doing. And I don't know if maybe that's wrong on some level or just not faithful to what's really happening because it seems like the more clear, the more explicit God's presentation of himself is to us, the more scared we become. Think of Isaiah. He's looking at this incredible vision. The hem of God's robe is filling the temple. There are seraphim that are flying back and forth and singing. He's entering into the throne room of heaven. And his response is, oh no. That's the edited Christian version for the live stream. <laughs> Beep. <laughs> He's like, what? Are you serious? I'm, I'm in that's his response, right? I'm in trouble. It's interesting, Peter's response to Jesus, if you go back into the fourth chapter, Jesus casts out a demon and he uses the same language that Peter uses. <laughs> He's casting out Jesus. He's like, get out of here. <laughs> I can't be with you. You clearly are not just a good teacher, there's a lot more going on with you. And this is, of course, that Rudolf Otto idea of mysterium tremendum et fessinans, that this thing, this person, this reality, this mystery that is so tremendous that it induces fear is also so fascinating that we're attracted to it. This is what Peter is feeling in this moment. And I just began thinking, when was the last time you were scared to death in a church service? Not because the preacher was weird. I don't mean that. <sighs> you know, not at the offering. <laughs> when was the last time? And I, I mean, I'm asking myself the question. I think it's a fair question. When was the last time when I encountered the mysterium, I encountered the Lord, I encountered the power to reverse reality as I know it, and was overcome with fear, tremendum. I'm even, I'm just to sort of open up my brain here and let you know how I process it. Like I think to myself, if I never experience fear in the presence of God, am I really encountering the presence of God? Like if I never have a Peter, I'm not saying, I don't want to go to church every morning like afraid to put my hand on the handle of the door. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying there are these moments where if I never have an Isaiah moment, I never have a Peter moment. And we know that these are sprinkled throughout the text. If I never have this sense of his otherness, am I having a full, faithful, vibrant life of the Spirit. In other words, if my life with God is never complicated, is it faithful? If my life with God never gets to the point where it's saying, you scare the life out of me, but I just can't look away. If I never get to that place, am I really dealing with God?
C.S. Lewis has this incredible, he says it better than, I've tried to say this in my own words and it never comes out right. This is what he says. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered from time to time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? Friends, (laughs) Peter went from great teaching. Yeah, I think I know this guy. This guy's probably a master rabbi. (laughs) Yeah, and he's the eternal word. He is the son of righteousness. He is the one who was there with God in the beginning. And when he says, put your nets down into the deep, you realize you're dealing with more than a master. The master for a lot of us, that master icon where Jesus is the source of wisdom and Jesus is the source of insight and Jesus gives us uh, um, principles for better living. All of these things are true, and I'm not saying they're not true, but if that's all that Jesus is to us, that needs to be shattered. That needs to be broken up, because at some point, Jesus has to switch, like Peter, this movement from the master teacher to Lord, make your knees shake, make your soul quake, I have to get out of this situation. I think there has to come this point where we realize we're not dealing with a Tony Robbins character. Not that there's anything wrong with Tony Robbins. I'm not saying that. I'm not preaching against Tony Robbins. Just to clarify. Do you understand what I'm trying to say here is that he's so much more. He's so mysterious. He's so beyond. He's so powerful. He's so transcendent. He so has the capacity to step into our situations where we're experts and we know how to do it and we've been doing it right. And God just goes, midday, drop those nets. Let's see what happens. And of course, this moves us into this third phase. The master who became the Lord now says in verse 10, do not be afraid. From now on, in this translation, it says you'll be catching men or catching people. Luke intentionally does not talk about and does not use the phrase that Matthew and Mark use. If you grew up in Sunday school, you know how to say this verse better than the translators, don't you? Because Matthew and Mark, they say it like it really is. You're going to be fishers of... Man, okay? He's using this language, of course, to pull out a different approach in which there's, he's saying you guys are going to work together collaboratively. He's pulling this out. But here's what happens. Verse 11, it says they brought these boats that are creaking and overrun with fish, about to sink. The water's right up to the gunwale there. And it simply says abruptly. They left everything and followed him. It's jarring. I mean, think about this for a moment. You get two verses describing their astonishment and the interaction. You get half a verse. 
You get half a verse. We're out. Let's go. And I think this is, Jesus keeps upending. Jesus keeps shifting things on them. Because the first one is, yeah, you know what? I, in me, are hidden. Paul says in Colossians, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Jesus quickly becomes master. Somebody worth listening to. Somebody worth obeying. Even when the instructions don't make sense, Jesus is worth obeying. Amen? But when we see God working, not just bringing wisdom, but bringing his supernatural power to bear on our lives, something gets flipped. We thought he was the master teacher, but suddenly we find him Lord of Lords. Suddenly we find his power and the mystery and the transcendence of who Jesus is, and there's a little bit of fear involved. What's amazing about this is the one thing Peter doesn't want is the one thing Jesus does want, to be together. One of the reasons I think we're reluctant to talk about fearing God and we're reluctant to talk about this sort of awesome energy is it feels like it creates space, the kind of space that Peter and Isaiah are are crying out for. And the beautiful thing about this story is this story says, you're right to think that you and Jesus should be apart, but Jesus refuses to let that be the case. That's the beautiful thing about the story is that the move has to be master to Lord to leader. He has to become, for all of his masterful teaching, for all of his powerful works, he has to become the person you're walking with. He has to be the person who's worth leaving everything for. He has to be that one who says, follow me. And in the abrupt tone of half a verse, they left everything. And they followed him. Peter moves in this part of the story from fear into following. He realizes Jesus is trustworthy. Can I say that again for you this morning? If your heart is heavy, if your vision is cloudy, can I tell you Jesus is trustworthy? You will be let down. You'll be hurt. You'll be confused by all sorts of people Sometimes including ourselves, hello? Anybody ever let yourself down? Don't raise your hands. That's just me, sort of. I'm Pentecostal, so my hand just goes up involuntarily. I'm like George Costanza, you know, just. Sometimes I need to tell myself, Mark, Jesus is trustworthy. Don't follow your heart. Follow him. Those two don't always line up in case nobody told you that. Follow him. Go after him. I'm one of the crazy ones who actually believe that this miracle happened. I'm one of the crazy ones who believe that Jesus actually did this. But here's what else I believe. 
I believe that Jesus does things like this in people's lives. And when he does, it's always bigger than the moment. Gregory the Great was speaking about this particular passage, and this is what he said. We must understand the miracles of our Lord and Savior, dearly beloved, so as to believe that they have truly been done, but also that their meaning signifies still something more to us. See, I don't think this is only true of the miracles in the Bible. I think this is true of the miracles in our lives. The miracles in our lives signify something more than the miracle themselves. This miracle, when you see the power of God displayed in your life this way, you will drop everything and follow him. Jesus is showing if you had a question whether or not I was trustworthy, look at your broken boat. If you had a question whether or not the things I say come to pass, look at your bursting nets. Look at what I do. You see, this miracle, this working of power, is not simply to establish Peter's fishing business in the Galilee. It's just the opposite. He's looking to get Peter out of the Galilee. (laughs) He's like, boy, I got plans for you. How many of us, hello, we would have pulled in that haul of fish and we'd been like, okay, we're expanding. We need a third boat. Two boats is not going to cut it. Come on, right? I mean, think about this. We'd have a testimonial video. We'd change the name of the business. (laughs) It'd be like the Lord and Peter. Like, you know, we've given him a new name. How we can so misconstrue the working of God in our lives When God looks at Peter, he doesn't see a fisherman in Galilee. He sees an apostle in Jerusalem saying, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. He doesn't see somebody with a thriving business in a sea town. He sees Peter opening up the gospel to the Gentiles. This is what he sees. What great work is God doing in your life? And you say, well, I can't think of one. Well, this is good because I showed up here to tell you God does stuff like this. God breaks boats and nets and he does it at the wrong time. He reverses and upends and overturns all of the presuppositions we continually have about him. He shatters all of the icons we create to present himself in new, fresh, and faithful ways as to who he is. That's what he does. But in the end, it's always bigger than the moment. It's about things we can't imagine. It's why Paul would go on to say, to him who is able to do, Ephesians 3 and 20, exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond, all that we could ask or think. Look at this. To him be glory in the church. That means he's going to do that stuff in the church. Stuff we can't imagine, stuff we can't see, stuff. Listen, if I limit God's working to my sense of possibility, That's a pretty dull life. Can I say that one more time to this side of the room? If I limit what God can do to my imagination and sense of what's possible, that's a dull life. Peter might have had the imagination because of this. Let's keep this guy around. I want him rubbing the fishing nets. I want him anointing with oil from, get it from Jerusalem. Anoint these boats because we're going to expand. 
We're enlarging our territory. That was a joke, a bad one, I'm sorry. Well, think about it. No, you know what? I actually like where I'm at right there because here's what I'd say with that. So have we ever, mm, you know what? No, okay. I'm editing the sermon live. I don't read them, so I should probably just read them. Can I say this to you? God uses counterintuitive ideas. He uses things we would never expect to bring fruit where our good ideas have been futile. He uses a crazy idea like cast your nets into the deep in the middle of the day when our good idea, fishing all night long, has been futile. And in doing so, he changes the way we see him. He opens up our eyes to take in a greater panorama of the fullness of who God is. And could I go on to say that his power is displayed in our lives not as a finale, not as the fullness of what he's doing, but as a launching pad into what he's ultimately wanting to do in our lives. When God does something great, we shouldn't just celebrate for the greatness of the thing itself, but for the greatness the thing is pointing to. Let's pray together this morning. Father, this morning, we come to you in the name of your Son and bless you in the name of your Son. And we are so aware this morning of your presentness to us, of your desire to be with us, but also of your desire to do things in and through us that we can't really imagine right now. And so I'm praying for those of us who need a shattering of whatever ideas of you we have. God, we lift up our hearts to you this morning and we, we ask you, we invite you, God, come and shatter any icon, any image, every, every idea of you that is, it, it needs to come down. Do that for us. Lord, I pray that some of us would, would have that shift, that we'd stop calling you master and we'd start calling you Lord. That like Peter, we'd realize you're not just a source of beautiful ideas. You're a source of tremendous power. But God, more than anything, I pray today that we would be the sorts of men and women who walk out of this place ready to drop everything to follow you. And we ask this in Jesus' name.